so grateful to be here. I'm going to pray again. Is that all right? All right. Thank you. All right, let us pray. Uh, God, you are amazing. You are infinitely great and immensely wonderful beyond remarkable, God. I'm grateful for the opportunity to stand before these women to share your word. I pray that you would be opening their hearts and minds to receive what you have to say. May we all walk away better as a community as a result of hearing your word. May we be encouraged. May we be challenged. May we be transformed by you. Help us to hear and believe that we are ever dependent upon you. And may we not run from that dependence, but embrace it. Thank you for your love for us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Make sure this thing is recording. All right. We're good. All right. I came across a story recently that really encouraged and challenged me in the way I think about myself in relation to God and to others. It's a story about Bob Andrews. Now, Bob has a pretty active lifestyle. He sells, he fishes, and body surfs. But what is most impressive about Bob is that he is a professional golf player with a 30 handicap. Now, for some of you, golf is not interesting. A 30 handicap means nothing to you, and Bob is nowhere near impressive until you learn that he is blind. In the game of golf, whether you have sight or not, the handicap number tells of a golfer's level of skill on the golf course. The lower his number, the greater a golfer he is considered to be. And so on a handicap scale of 0 to 54, Bob's game just went from average to amazing. So when Bob first lost his sight, he was nowhere near excited about life. He wondered what could he possibly do now that he is blind. And someone challenged him with his one-sided thinking to think in terms of team. To think instead of life from the standpoint of I, to think in terms of we. Blind golf is the ultimate team sport because of the unique relationship between the player and their coach. Blind golfers are completely reliant on their coaches for almost everything. The coach helps the golfer navigate the course, describes the distance, direction, and description of the hole, and helps the golfer align their club and ball. Players have said of their coaches, you don't second guess the coach with vision, you really do have to trust that individual. In the game of blind golf, it is impossible to navigate the course and play the game well without the help of the coach. And so it is in our lives. It is a message I want you to keep in mind as we go through today's passage. As we look at the text today, we find that to navigate this world in unity and humility is a harder course than we can imagine. We need Christ. Let me say that again. To live in unity with others with an attitude of humility can only be done with Christ's help. 
Now, for those who were not at the last mini retreat, we learned in the first chapter of Philippians that Paul, the author of the book, is currently in prison for preaching about Jesus. And he's writing to the church at Philippi, his dear friends, to encourage them, and he expresses his joy. His his joy as he thinks about how the Philippians have partnered with him over the last 10 years in his ministry. And that though he is in prison, literally chained to a Roman guard, he can still rejoice because the gospel of Jesus is still being proclaimed more and more. And so we pick up in chapter 2, Paul begins by talking about what would make his joy complete. So let's take a look at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Now what is Paul saying here? If you look to Christ and have found any encouragement, that word encouragement means to inspire with courage, more hopeful, more confident, If you look to Christ and have been inspired, found hope, and some translations go on to say any comfort from his love, any fellowship in the spirit, then, as almost to say, if you have looked to Christ and have been impacted by him at all, then be unified in the way you think and love one another. Right in the middle of this if-then statement, Paul says, complete my joy. As if to say his joy is not complete until this happens. It is not enough for Paul that the church is helping him along in his ministry or even that the gospel is being proclaimed more. Paul essentially is saying here, my joy is full when those who have a relationship with Christ allow that relationship to impact the way they relate to one another. Are you hearing Paul? Now, the church at Philippi was made up of varying social statuses, economic classes, occupations, cultures. And so if I had to draw a current day picture of the congregation, it would look something like this, okay? One member is driving a Benz and the other is driving a Kia. No offense to anyone who drives a Kia. One is a top neurosurgeon and the other works in a prison as a guard. One comes from the African culture and another from an Asian background. And with all that diversity in mind, we look back at verse 2 and Paul basically says, I want you to love one another. I want you to have the same mind. In essence, I want you to agree. So the question becomes, with all our differences and all our preferences, how? How can we be unified in the way we think and love one another? Well, it's right there in the text, right? Verse 1. The text says you can be this way. It is possible if you are connected with Christ. So being unified in the way you think and love one another initially may not sound hard, right? You may think, I can love people. I can get along with someone who is different from me. We can hear this, and the natural tendency is for us to examine our own ability to determine if we can do it, right? Yet as we get into verse 3, 
it shows us why we in our own efforts cannot do this and why again we need Christ. So let's read on. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So we go from talking about being connected with Christ, being unified, and then we switch over to discussing selfishness and humility. So why does Paul even go here? Why not just say, if you're connected with Christ, be inspired by him, comforted by his love, live in unity. What does unity have to do with selfishness and humility? Let's take a closer look. What is selfish ambition and conceit mean? I'll give you the definition. I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) So it means having an excessively favorable opinion of one's own ability, importance, and the desire to be distinguished for it. Put simply, I am better than you. And I want it to be known that I am better. Do you feel that sense of arrogance? that poison of self-exaltation, the hurt that it can bring in the context of community. And Paul says, do nothing from this place, from this kind of mindset. It is not that you can't think of yourself at all. It is not saying you are to be a doormat for others to walk all over. But when you pair this with verse 1 and 2, what you begin to see is that selfish ambition and conceit are at odds with unity. Selfishness disrupts unity. Self-centeredness erodes unity. I cannot be one with you if I am consumed with myself. Are you hearing me? In order to think and love as God calls us to, we need Christ. We need his help because we are naturally selfish. And this is the sin that lies within us. Now, this is not the only time that Paul talks about selfish ambition. In the previous chapter, verse 17, Paul talks about how the gospel is being preached more and more, but some are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition. Rather than preaching with the mere aim to see Christ exalted and others saved, they're sending a message to Paul to say, I am better than you. And Paul says, regardless... Regardless of what, regardless of your mindset and motives, I rejoice because Christ is being proclaimed. Amen. But it's almost as if I can hear Paul saying in this chapter, don't get it twisted. I'm glad the gospel is being preached, but having that kind of mindset is not okay. For those who know Christ, that kind of mindset is at odds with the very character of the one they are proclaiming. That's like me getting up here talking about how we need to be humble and serve others, right? And every example of humility is about myself, (laughs) boasting of what I have done to help others. You would walk away and say, man, she ain't right. She is prideful. The very thing she is saying to do, she is doing the opposite. It's incongruent. And you know, the reason I think Paul has verse 3 here is because he knows we are all prone to be incongruent with what God calls us to do. 
the Philippian church included, myself included, you included. We have a battle within that once we know what God requires, we can find ourselves doing the very opposite. Paul describes the dilemma well in Romans 7, and he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin is living in me. He goes on to say, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. In thinking we can do what God requires, we quickly realize the war within our sinful nature and that we can't without Christ's help. We need to be inspired by him. We need to be comforted by him. We need his spirit. But Paul does not leave us here, though, only describing the mindset that we shouldn't have. He tells us how we should think. Now, I want you to think about weight loss for a minute. I know nobody tries to lose weight, right? We love our figures. Now, if you've ever thought about weight loss, when you're trying to lose weight, one of the main emphasis is on your eating habits. So you're trying to get rid of poor eating habits, so you may start by cutting out processed sweet snacks, for example. Now, if you stop cold turkey with something your body is used to, your body is going to let you know that is not cool, okay? That craving is going to intensify and you will find yourself consuming a gallon of chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream. You will realize your effort to improve did not last. So when trying to make adjustments in life, it is not enough just to stop one bad habit. You have to replace it with a good one. So we have learned so far, don't do things from a mindset of I am better than you. Here is the healthier mindset. Let's look at the latter half of verse 3 into verse 4. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I told you, God is not promoting us being doormats. That's not what humility is. So I want you to look at these words more closely. It says, count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests. The text is not saying you are nothing. Counting someone more significant is not to say to someone, you are better and I'm the worst. You're so smart and I'm foolish. You're so organized and I'm such a mess. You are not counting yourself down and out. Quite the opposite. The text is implying you are significant. You are important. Now place someone else's importance above your own. It reminds me of what Jesus said in the book of Mark. When asked what's the most important commandment, Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. The underpinnings of that statement is what? That you do love yourself, not that you don't love yourself at all. Our text today implies you do have interests. But this is the thing. 
many times in life, once we get what we want, the search is over, the task is complete, we say, job well done by me, we count it as a good day. And verse, set, verse four says, look not only to your own interests. Don't stop at having your concerns, your interests met. Think how you can aid in someone else's interests being met. This kind of mindset is what makes unity possible. I want you to think about it this way. You know, we had this common saying back in the day, if I had a dollar for every time you fill in the blank, I would be rich. If every time we thought about ourselves, we also became just as concerned about another, this world would be rich in unity, rich in community. Yet that is not the prevalent mindset today. We live in a selfie generation, right? Selfie, 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 take a selfie, right? Me, myself, and I come first. And the challenge, and what I think Paul is getting at, is to get to a mindset of we, to get to a mindset of us instead of I and me. And that is not easy. It will cost you time. It will cost you energy and resources. Listen, every now and again, I find myself in a season where I get tired of serving my family. Am I the only one? (laughs) I have three beautiful girls, ages four and under. Wonderful, God-fearing, loving husbands. My family is not perfect by any means, but I am so grateful for them. Yet after a certain period of serving them, Okay, I start thinking to myself, I am always, that's when you know you're in trouble, when you start classifying things and always and never, I am always the last to get dressed, the last to take a shower, the last to eat. I start thinking more about myself and it changes the way I view my family. Then it's three kids who constantly drain me of energy. I think to myself, when is the last time my husband cooked me a meal and sat a plate in front of me? Everyone is being served but me. When do I get a break? When is enough enough? Have you ever found yourself there? You get tired and irritated with giving of yourself, helping others, and they Whoever they are, they become the problem. If they didn't require so much help, if they weren't so weak, if they weren't so selfish, right? Listen, at that point, the idea of we is gone. There is no us. There is no unity. We have major limitations and barriers to living a life in unity and humility. Our self-centeredness blinds us. The call to seek the interests of others costs so much that we in our own strength cannot match it. It feels good for a moment to help, but to have to do it over and over again, it just depletes us. If you have ever felt this way, 
you are not alone. And the goal of the message is not for you to feel condemned or defeated, but to realize you need a savior. Someone who has conquered sin. You need someone who is the epitome of humility, one who knows what it's like to examine himself and yet choose to exalt another. You need Christ. In order to live in unity with others and with an attitude of humility, it can only be done with Christ's help. Let's read on to verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." If you want to talk about someone who is truly significant, he is supreme. He had all power, yet in humility brought himself low for the interests of us all. Christ is that very one. Look at what he did. It says, Jesus, who was God, did not cling to his position as God, but emptied himself. Some translations put it this way. He gave up his divine privileges to become a servant being born like a human. It says in verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Christ, who is equal with God the Father, who did no wrong, could have done anything he wanted, yet humbled himself. He thought more of what the Father called him to do. He thought more of you and I, when we were not even thinking about him. And he died so that we might live. Let me illustrate it another way. There's a story told of a young recruit training with hopes to serve his country to serve his people by becoming a Marine. The young man came across as a bit odd to others, and so he easily became the subject of ridicule for those who enjoy picking on people. In the barracks where this young Marine was assigned, there was an extremely high level of meanness. The other young men did anything they could to make a joke of the new recruit and to humiliate him. So one day, Someone came up with the bright idea that they would scare the living daylights out of this young Marine. And they would all get a big laugh out of it. The time comes, and they go and throw a disarmed hand grenade in the middle of the floor, pretending that it's about to go off. They yell, it's a live grenade! It's about to explode! They just knew that this recruit would get hysterical and maybe even jump out of the window. The young Marine turned and ran toward the grenade, fell on it, hugged it to his stomach, and yelled to the other men in the barracks, run, get out of here, you'll be killed if you don't. The other Marines froze. They realized that the one who had done nothing wrong, the one they had sought to humiliate, 
was the one ready to lay down his life so that they may live. Beloved, how much more has Jesus done for you? Jesus chose to be humiliated for you. My God, not only did he die, but in verse eight, it says he died on a cross. Death on a cross was the most humiliating way to die. And it was reserved for the worst criminals. Christ was beaten to the point that he was almost unrecognizable. His back, tattered and torn from the whip that sliced through his skin, with his flesh exposed and bleeding, he is placed on a wooden cross where the only thing holding him up were the giant nails that were struck into his hands and feet. Hanging there naked, any attempt to move or reposition himself, causing excruciating pain as the wood chips from that raw beam dug deeper into his wounds. Talking about serving to the point that it hurts. Yet he counted the cost of what it would take for you and I to be forgiven of all of our sins. And he said, I'm paying it. Colleen, I am paying it. Katie, I am paying it for you. He died on the cross for all of us. When we think about the call to be unified and humble and to serve others, it may seem like a tall order for us. Yet the point is not for us to walk away and to say, I can't rise to the challenge, but to look to Christ to look to Christ who has already risen to the challenge and overcome it. You can be encouraged by him. You can be comforted by his love for you. You can be inspired by him. You can have fellowship with his spirit and be who God has called you to be. When you find yourself tired of serving, giving of yourself and at odds with others. It's not for you to condemn yourself. Rather, that may be the cue that you have taken your eyes off the one who inspires, the one who has made life worth the living. When I think about Bob Andrews, the blind golfer, he was an amazing golfer, not because he could play a sport that relies on sight, even though he was blind. He is amazing because of how much he depended and trusted on his coach. No matter how hard the course he finished because of that unwavering trust. For Christ to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, he must have had a steadfast faith in the Father. And it says in verse 5, we are to have that same attitude, the same mind as Christ. When we look to Christ's example, to the outcome of all that he did, we can find hope. Let's read the last few verses, starting at verse 9. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him 
the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As a result of his humility, God exalted Christ above all. Not only did Jesus die, but he rose again and ascended into heaven. Because of his humility, all nations, every being that has ever existed in heaven and on earth and under the earth, the angels, the living and the dead will all be united in humble submission to him. Every tongue, regardless of the language spoken, will all proclaim the same thing. They will all agree that Jesus is to be adored and worshipped, that he rules and reigns over all. Beloved, because of what Christ has done, we can live in unity and in humility. Amen? Christ was the ultimate model. He left his position and he came down for us. Consider what he has done. We can never repay him. Yet for the unbeliever, you can start by believing that you are a sinner. Christ did die and pay the penalty for your sins. You can be forgiven of every act of disobedience and receive eternal life. For those of us who do believe in Jesus, in our weakest moments, when we feel that we have failed him, that is the moment to draw closer to Christ and ask him for his help. We are called to have a mindset of we. We suffer. We rejoice. We are humbled. And we are exalted. Amen. Now, ladies, if you can, I want us all to stand up. Can you stand with me? As I close, I would love for you, if you can join hands with the women at your table, as we remember that we are called to live in unity. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Ladies, remember, do not be satisfied to go and live life well on your own. Make room for others. Think, love, serve others with an attitude of humility. That's what Christ did for us. All right, let us close our eyes and bow to pray. God, you are so good. You are infinitely great, immensely wonderful, beyond remarkable, and now we all know why. You are so gracious that today you have helped us to realize that we are in desperate need of a savior in order to live the way that you have called us to with a humble mindset in unity with others. Jesus, we need your help. 
thank you that through your death on the cross, our sins can be forgiven, that by your spirit and with your help, we can overcome the pull of our culture and our very nature within to think solely of ourselves. May we love and esteem and serve one another as you call us to. May we go deeper in our relationship with you. May we be ever inspired by your example. May it propel us to be the community that you call us to be. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Let us all say amen, amen, and amen. All right. Thank you.